Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Okay. All right. My roommate <laughs> has left, so now I can I can speak again. What's up? What's up? Welcome back to another episode of She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field one lady at a time. Our theme this season is all about the power couples. And like always, we will focus on the ladies from these dynamic duos. So no need to worry. In today's episode, we will tell the story of Ray Eames. Yes, that Ray Eames, the designer behind the Eames house, the chair, and of course, the Charles and Ray Eames. I'm Jessica Rogers celebrating my favorite springtime tradition in Washington, D.C., the cherry blossoms. Hey, girl. Hey, I'm Lizzie Rar, going through third winter in San Francisco. And I'm Nerditi Rivas with my allergy medicine ready to go from Houston, Texas. <laughs> now for our disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning. All right. So for today, we begin in sunny Sacramento, California. On December 15th, 1912. Bernice Alexandra Kaiser, nicknamed Ray, was born. Her mother, Edna, was a housewife and her father, Alexander, worked in the insurance business. Actually, before working in the insurance business, he actually owned a theater. Ooh, that's interesting. I wonder how that influenced Ray. Well, both of her parents had a love for the performing arts. They enjoyed ballet. They even joined film, which was beginning at that time which would later inspire Ray as well. She loved art and ballet. She attended the Sacramento Junior College, where she focused on illustration, poster art, art anatomy, and art history. Art anatomy? What's that? Oh, <laughs> it's the name that's given to drawing anatomy, like human and animal figures. I would have thought it would be called anatomy art, but 
Yeah, I feel like that's a much better name. I didn't expect it to be so literal. I thought it was something like abstract, like the anatomy of art and the artistic profession or something. (laughs) Right? Yeah, the first time I heard it, I thought the same thing. Like it would be about the parts that make up art and abstract, like you said, but no. Misleading. (laughs) You know how English do. They just like to keep us guessing in this language. As soon as you think you got that grammar down, they throw anatomy. I mean, (laughs) they throw in (laughs) art anatomy. Exactly. (laughs) Last year, it was barnstorming. This year is art anatomy. We are learning new things every season. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're going to jump from 1931 to the summer of 1933. Ray will attend May Friend Bennett School for Girls in Melbrook, New York. That school was a progressive liberal arts college where they taught art, music, dance, and drama, along with regular academic studies. So very fitting for Ray. Yes. There she learned from other artists like Lucinda Davis, a.k.a. Lou Double, and Hans Hoffman. These two artists would become really influential for Ray. <gasps> Ooh, Lou, the very talented and famous sculptor whose best known works were human figures made in stone, cement, and terracotta. Not to be confused with the Canadian actress Lucinda Davis, known for her work on the films The Words and Race. Oh. Hmm. Two different Lucindas, everybody. Noted. Okay. Noted. Well, Hans Hoffmann was a famous German painter and teacher, and his work and techniques led the way for post-World War II artists to develop abstract expressionism. Yes. Well, okay. So one thing to know about Ray is that she was interested in structure. And the artists that she followed and learned from, like Lizzie mentioned, they were from that abstract expressionist movement. You know, artistic and expressive, but... This movement still had structural elements. Think strong lines, depth, stuff like that. That's so cool. Lee Krasner was part of that movement. And actually, she learned from Hoffman as well. She specialized in collage. And actually, she was married to Jackson Pollock. Apparently, her work was a bit more formalized than his. But there was cross-pollination between the two, if you know what I mean. Uh Well, I betcha that she liked Marth Rothko. We got a lot of his paintings here in Houston. There's even a Mark Rothko chapel. He is very known for his color field work. If you ask me, it looks like just two colors on a big piece of paper, but it was meant to represent his inner emotions. And (laughs) I guess I can see that if I look at it from that perspective. (laughs) I like Rothko. Okay. Great. I've grown to like him. You have to if you're going to live in Houston and go to the museum. Oh, okay. And see his work ever. And see his work a lot. (laughs) You've grown to like it. Um, Well, Ray, she was friends with all of these people because she was an artist herself. She was making art full time while she studied under some of those names like Lee Krasner and Mercedes Matter. And unfortunately, a lot of her work during that time was lost. But it is said that the artwork that still exists today has elements that are clear influences from that time. Very Picasso meets Kandinsky meets Miro and some Calder. Oh, that's a bummer that a lot of the work got lost. I wish we could have seen it. Yeah, Yeah. it's a real shame. Mm -hmm. But actually, I'm looking at these images in Google right now, and it looks like the kind of art I would like. I would describe it just like you did, Jessica. 
Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I saw. And that's what I read. <laughs> but anyway, so at around 1940, Ray left New York to go back to California to take care of her dying mother. After she passed, Ray would be interested in building a house in California. But then a friend introduced her to the Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan. <gasps> Ooh. Yes. Okay. So we mentioned this kind of as a teaser last week, but the Cranbrook Academy was kind of a hub of famous architects and artists who attended or taught there. It's also a really cool campus. Jessica and I actually got to visit when we were in school. Mm-hmm. And the campus was designed by Eliel Saarinen, and it was intended to be the American Bauhaus. And it's located in the suburbs of Detroit in Bloomfield Hills. And at the time, the Cranbrook educational community included Brookside School Cranbrook, which is an elementary school, Cranbrook School for Boys, Kingswood School for Girls, both of which were middle and high schools, and Cranbrook Academy of Art and Cranbrook Institute of Science. And it was meant to create an environment to foster personal development, spiritual growth, and social engagement. All right. So cue Charles Eames. Here we go. So Charles was an architect in St. Louis. He attended Washington University in St. Louis, but got asked to leave because he loved the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright, which wasn't that popular at the time. Wait, what? (laughs) He got kicked out for that? Architectural police? Whoop, whoop, move over, that has too modern. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay, so let me back it up. I'm just, yeah, explain it to me. I'm very confused <laughs> yeah. as to why that's a reason for expulsion. <laughs> yes, let, let me back it up a little bit. Um, so Charles, you know, he got a scholarship to go to the school and then he would, you know, do something and his professors would say, no, 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 design, it's this way. And Charles would say, no, 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 Frank is a god. And they were like, get out. So that's basically, <laughs> basically how it went. I feel exactly the same. Like, that makes no sense. Yes, you have given me no new information. Exactly. Think, think, uh, what's his name? Rourke. Um, what, the the fountainhead? fountainhead, you know? Oh. Yeah, like, think think of him. Like, everyone was designing this way, and he was like, nah, nah, I want to do it like what the new folks are doing. And they're like, we don't care about that new stuff. Out. It's just real insane. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, just give him a D. Like, don't give him a good grade. I like how Nargini's solution is just fail him. Like, <laughs> fail him. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes if you keep failing, they just gonna kick you out. So. I guess, I guess. And it's happened to a few of our ladies before, like Ada, she wanted to talk about like Italian modernism and they're like, nope, your thesis is crap. Get yeah, out. That's true. And then, mm, so, okay. I mean, so <laughs> shame on them. But anyway, it, it's, it's okay because after dropping out of college, he started his own firm. Pause. That's a euphemism if I ever heard one. Did he get kicked out or did he drop out? Which one is it? <laughs> 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 well, I guess it depends on who you ask. Maybe he told his buddies he dropped St. Louis like a bad habit. 
I mean, yeah, in my research, I heard both, you know, like I heard that he dropped out, he got kicked out. So who knows? Conflicting stories. Yeah. Yeah. The re- I mean, if only we could ask these people. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? St. Louis, like if you probably ask the school, they'll be they'll probably say like he just left on his own accord. Right. Because they don't want to say that they kicked Charles Eames out of their school. Yeah. Who exactly. Does? So. <laughs> Anyway, so after that time period of his life uh, and when he started his own firm, he would be designing these modern churches. And actually, so side note, I was reading later that he was designing these like modern churches, which turned out to be very homey, which was interesting. But anyway, it granted him an invitation for a fellowship at Cranbrook, where he studied for like a year And his second year at Cranbrook, he was actually asked to work as a professor and to collaborate with Aero Saarinen. Oh, that really worked out for him, didn't it? It's like he's the Mark Zuckerberg of architecture. (laughs) 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 He gets to work, gets to go to this other amazing school and work with Aero Saarinen, who we talked about on our last episode. So y'all should remember him. If you don't listen to episode Mm -hmm. 47, talk about Aero Saarinen. 46. Oh, 46, because we're on 47 (laughs) right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while at Cranbrook, Arrow and Charles were working on a project to try to come up with a design of a plywood chair that could be mass produced commercially. It was successful since Charles and Arrow gained a lot of recognition and awards, but it was also unsuccessful because the actual process to mass produce would prove to be too complicated and costly. Okay, this is all great, but this is an episode about Ray. Where is Ray? Bring her back. Give the people <laughs> what they want, Jessica. Enter Ray. <laughs> so, what I didn't mention was that Ray was one of the students that assisted in creating the drawings for that submission. So, Ray was involved. Welcome back, Ray. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> yes, so at Cranbrook, Ray took courses in weaving and expressed interests in industrial design, leading her to work on this project where Charles became somewhat of a mentor and a collaborator. Uh, Asterix Q raised eyebrows repeatedly. Eyebrows raised repeatedly. Oh, okay. (laughs) So... Let me back it up. So Charles was actually married. Charles had married his college sweetheart, Catherine. Together, they had a daughter. But something must have been a brewing between Charles and Ray. Because Ray didn't stay in Cranbrook long. She ended up moving to New York for a spell. All the while, Charles and Ray would exchange letters. You mean his college dropout, sweetheart? (laughs) That makes it sound like Catherine dropped out. Oh, true. Okay. We don't know what happened with Catherine's educational past, so I don't want to put that on her. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But wait Mm -hmm. a minute. Mm -hmm. Was Ray exchanging letters with Charles while he was married? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got questions. Some tea brewing Mm -hmm. up in here. Mm -hmm. Let's not jump to conclusions. Maybe there were just letters about chairs and wood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I can see Jessica's eyebrows moving furiously as we're talking about this, so I feel like it's a safe (laughs) bet. Oh, so they were talking about wood. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) Well, in one letter dated March 1941, 
Charles writes, We must see each other soon. This business of becoming dream people in each other's minds is no good. Oh, snap. That's really cute and poetic. But was he divorced? Yeah. Okay, ladies. Give us the time. Notice how I put, yeah. Mm -hmm. Notice how I put March 1941. This is where the real research begins. Because that's like, out of all of our research and all of our seasons, I was like, this is this is my time right now to do the real investigative <laughs> journalism here. This is, I needed, <laughs> this is my moment because this timeline, this timeline, though, this time. OK, because, you know, I love me some good drama, but the math wasn't math and right. It wasn't like, it, OK, let, let me break it down. Let me break it down. So Charles goes to Cranbrook from 1937 while married to wife one. Ray enters the picture in 1940. They meet, sparks fly, etc., etc. Between the fall and winter of 1940-1941, boom, exhibit A, the letter that I mentioned from March 1941, then boom, exhibit B, this letter from May in 1941, same year, that reads, Dear Mrs. Kaiser, I am 34 almost years old, single again, and broke. I love you very much and would like to marry very, very soon. With an asterisk at the bottom, it said, soon means very soon. I cannot promise to support us very well, but if given the chance, we'll sure and he'll try. Love, Charlie. We found love in a hopeless place. (laughs) (laughs) i mean it sounds like it might not have been so hopeless in the end also did you catch the single part yes i saw that okay yes okay see you see you see so i will have a photo in our show notes because well this is the part that i couldn't decipher or i didn't make sense to me because um well one it's his handwriting but in the letter there's this little illustration of a hand that charles slash charlie drew with an arrow pointing to the ring finger and he asks what is the size of this finger so this letter and drawing was how he proposed <laughs> yes <laughs> needless to say ray said yes and a month later they got married with their honeymoon being a road trip slash move to la Oh, wow. That was fast. Yeah. How you did see? his daughter take all this change and new stepmom? Do you know? Okay. So I didn't find the exact moment when all of this went down, but like of how everyone reacted. But the internet tells me that they had a great relationship. Lucia, that's the name of the daughter. She is noted to be as like this beloved stepdaughter to Ray. So. Uh, okay. That's good. All's well that ends well. Yes. Okay. So in Los Angeles, Charles had a day job as a set architect at the MGM Studios while Ray painted and designed covers for arts and architecture magazine. And at night in their sped bedroom, they would work together, continuing the explorations that they were working on back at Cranbrook, molding plywood into compound curves that could be mass produced. You know, it's funny. What was going on at Cranbrook? I know, man. For them to be having all these affairs. Jesus. It's a lot happening. Everybody was getting on. I want to go to Cranbrook. That sounds like a fun time. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody. Jessica wants to be in an affair. Do you want to be in the drama? Yeah, that's true. Not 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 as a married woman. Yeah, I don't want to be a homewrecker. But I'm just saying. She wants to be the friend of the homewrecker. 
and hear yeah, all about just, it. Or, or like, could you imagine that one person that's in the studio and then you see Charles and Ray sneak off into a, like a closet and you're like, what's about to happen? And then you see Aline and um, Arrow or whatever going to another closet and you're like, what is going on? What is this, an episode of Grey's Anatomy? Like what? For real? Mm. That reminds me of Hans Schroeder and how she helped Garrett Rietveld with his bent plywood chairs in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. Yes. But Hans and Garrett, they were not trying to mass produce these. And actually, at the time, the whole country, they were trying to find ways to mass produce furniture, housing. We were at the tail end of World War II, remember, and the U.S. was expecting a major influx of GIs coming into the country. Other things were being mass produced, too, like cars. Ladies and gentlemen, we were entering the machine age after all. So interesting. And that makes a lot of sense, though, as to why they were trying to get into that. Yes. So because of their achievements with molding plywood, they were able to create sculptures and children toys, other chairs that had separate backs and seats, which were actually used in World War II by the U.S. Navy. They were even commissioned to design plywood splints and stretchers for the Navy as well. Oh, yeah. I like the splints that they made. They're pretty. Almost makes you want to break your leg. Uh, I don't know about that. I'll let you do that so that I can see your splint. Hmm. Will insurance cover that? Okay, maybe I'll just pretend it's broken and wear it. (laughs) Okay. That sounds like a better plan. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty enough to hang on the wall somewhere. That too. So. Okay. All right. So. Enter the Eames house. But let's start at the beginning. Okay, so in 1945, the Arts and Architecture magazine announced a competition challenging architects to reconsider the design of the home. Together with their pal, Saarinen, they would design what would be one of their most famous works, the Case Study House Number 8, or more commonly known as the Eames house. Ah, yes. So excited to discuss this. Me too. All right. So ladies, help me paint this picture, shall we? Nestled on the hillsides of the Pacific Palisades overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Two glass and steel rectangular boxes stand 17 feet tall with a central axis of a courtyard in between. Public and private spaces are clearly defined, but still flexible enough that when Charles and Ray are home, they would have all of the doors and windows open, creating a long unified space. Color and materials were also crucial to the design of the Eames house. Color was used to strategically inform important parts of the space, guiding viewers and enhancing the experience. The facade was basically a black painted grid with different size inserts of glass, semesto panels, which is, you guessed it, cement and asbestos, painted aluminum, and other specially treated panels. These panels were prefabricated, making it economical and easy to assemble. Word on the street is that it only took five men to build in only 16 hours. Whoa. Yeah. I want that. (laughs) Yeah. Mm, yeah. Maybe minus the asbestos. Mm, Yeah. We can take that out. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Everything is connected in this house, including the landscape. The site includes a meadow that Charles and Ray wanted to preserve. There are plants and trees everywhere, mostly eucalyptus, but there are also olive and pepper trees. 
Another interesting thing about the site was that it experiences all four seasons in the year. A rarity for a place like L.A. I have some thought like that's not real seasons, but sure. OK, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, according to the website, I mean, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not San Francisco and not like, you know, Michigan, but <laughs> for L.A. I don't know. But yeah, I want that garden. In previous episodes, we have talked about other glass and steel framed homes like Lena's, the Farnsworth House and Philip Johnson's glass house. But the Eames house differs from them in that the panels that Nergidi talks about allow for different types of light to filter through. And the nature that surrounds the house, like Jessica mentioned, creates an ever changing cast of shadows, creating different views and experiences on the outside and the inside. Mm-hmm. I love this so much. With Ray's background in art, you can clearly see her influence with those panels of the facade, bold and colorful. Very Piet Mondrian, very distill, that I talked about on episode 13, Hans Schroeder. The interesting thing is that Piet influenced Hans Hoffman, that we know influenced Ray, so it's all connected, guys. Mm-hmm. All connected. Ooh, that makes a lot of sense. I have always liked the look of this house, but I didn't study it much in school, so it's fun to learn more about the design and influences now. And I also haven't had a chance to visit it yet, but hopefully we can go see it sometime. Yes, I definitely want to go see it. And I remember first learning about this house, and I think the color is what stood out to me. Yeah. But now looking at it again, learning about the landscape and even the comparison to other glass steel houses that we've talked about i really like this house Mm -hmm. well like i mentioned in the han episode distill is like my favorite so i always really like this project distill art was about creating peace and harmony of the spirit by reducing art to its purest form it was about the straight lines rectangular areas of primary colors and black and white and the distill architecture takes that same geometry and order into three dimensions. So if you think about it, the Eames were designing a house that could be a pure form of living environments where all the spaces are connected within themselves and with nature. That's beautiful. Yeah. All right. So along with the Eames house, they also worked with Saarinen on the design of another case study called case study house number nine. They designed the glass and steel showrooms of the Herman Miller Furniture Company in L.A. Ooh, Herman Miller. You know, they're actually based in Zeeland, Michigan, which is the town Mm -hmm. right next door to my hometown. And Herman Miller is who manufactures and produces their furniture, right? Yes. So it made its debut in 1956. The Eames Lounge and Ottoman. Charles and Ray partnered with Herman Miller Furniture to produce this high-end chair to the masses, making it one of the most famous chair designs ever created. Yes. Okay, I really love this chair design. It's really well known, so if listeners can't picture it, they'll likely recognize it from the photo, which we'll put in our show notes. And you'll see Mm -hmm. how Ray and Charles got their molded plywood to work in the design. It's a quintessential piece of modern design. And it's also real comfy. I think the leather, (laughs) in addition to the plywood back, makes it modern, but not unapproachable, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Totally. I really like that the chair is as comfortable as it is attractive. Yeah. Which doesn't always go hand in hand. So I really appreciate (laughs) 
Exactly. I really, really appreciate that they achieved that. Yes. It's interesting that you mentioned that cushion because Ray and Charles wanted the users to feel snug like a baseball in a worn leather mint. But actually, back to your earlier comment, I had mentioned their earlier experiences with molding plywood and with this chair, it really took off. The concept is definitely something that has evolved over time. Charles would joke and say that, yes, it was a flash of inspiration, a kind of 30-year flash. Low and slow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, this reminds me of how Dora spoke about developing a style. It's something that changes and grows over time with you as a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like Lizzie was saying, the chair is super recognizable. It's even been featured in several places. Like, for example, on the show Frasier and more recently on Shark Tank, On their eighth season, they replaced all their chairs with the Eames Lounge chairs. So the sharks (laughs) look more cool and sit comfy at the same time. There you go. There you go. Well, okay. So in case y'all were wondering if you could order it directly from the Herman Miller site, you can. And it'll cost you about $8,000. A steal. (laughs) A bargain. A steal. Okay. Let me just find my wallet. Yeah, let me get my checkbook right now. Right? Let me, let me get my checkbook. Yeah, so the Eames chair, the lounge chair, the ottoman, the Eames house, that would be probably their most famous works. However, Charles and Ray, they really worked on a lot of projects, and their projects varied so much. In addition to the projects that we've talked about, They would also design a few more houses, like for their friends, Billy and Audrey Wilder. They would design some more furniture pieces. They also created toys and films. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Didn't they also do something for Griffith Park in L.A.? Yes. So they designed that miniature railroad complex located in Griffith Park. You know, I remember seeing it when I visited Griffith Park on my way to the Griffith Observatory a few years ago. But I had no clue that it was done by them. Yeah. All right. So, ladies, in August 1978, Charles Eames would pass away. And then 10 years later, almost to the day, Ray Eames would also pass away in 1988. Oh, wow. That's a little romantic and a little creepy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But really, what a life that they were able to lead and create together. And such a vast legacy. It was... So great to discuss her life today and all her work. Yeah, Ray really did so much. Thanks for telling her story, Jessica. You got it. So fun. Okay, let's pause here to share some information from our sponsors. Yes, that's sponsors with an S at the end. (laughs) All right. So today we're excited to talk about Monograph. Are you tired of using outdated, clunky software to manage your firm? Mm. Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your projects stand today? Well, Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately see where you are under or over budget. Need to adjust your projects week to week? They've got you. Their tool resource allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on the remaining budget. Learn what else Monograph can do to help you operate your firm at monograph.com. Be proactive with Monograph. Visit monograph.com today. Today, we are also sponsored by NCARB's Analysis of Practice Study. 
This study is not only a survey, it's mainly your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. You can share your thoughts on how to improve the profession and how architects can work and collaborate better. Whether you're an architect or you just work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. So make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org backsplash AOP. Thanks again to our sponsors, Monograph and NCARB Analysis of Practice Study for supporting our show. Now, let's get back to our conversation. Take it away, Jessica. Wonderful, ladies. All right. Now we have reached the second half of the episode, the karyotid. Now, Judy, can you remind us what a karyotid is? Sure thing, Chica Wing. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode, we choose a karyotid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through her work, and who ties into the historical woman of this episode. All right, so this week's karyotid goes to... <laughs> Lisa Iwamoto! Yes. All right. So Lisa is a part of the award-winning firm Iwamoto Scott with her partner, Craig Scott. TBD if it's romantical or not. Anyway, Lisa, she became the chair of architecture in December 2021 at the University of California, Berkeley, where she has taught since 2001. Prior to becoming the chair there, she held the inaugural Doris and Clarence Mallow Collegium Teaching Chair in Design at Berkeley, where her design research would focus on, you know, like perceptual performances of material, as well as like digital fabrication and new techniques. So accomplished. Yes. All the things. Yeah. All the things. So Lisa and Craig, they also have their own firm where they do traditional architecture, but they also do interior projects. So where this is where Lisa gets to work on a lot of experimental fabrications, which kind of reminded me of like the new things that Charles and Ray was experimenting with. Ah, keep that creative experimentation alive. Yes. Yeah. All right, ladies, we're at the end of our episode. But before we sign off. I know. It, I mean, we could just talk about the Eames house and visit our show notes there. But before we sign off, we want to give our thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer. And most of all, thank y'all for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Ray and briefly about Lisa, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find more information about these amazing professional ladies. So again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media, you ask? It's curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your students, your professors, your sculptors, your painters, your romantic involvements, all of them. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. Honestly, this really helps us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. Yes. So we're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. 
You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Does that, is that better? Yeah, that's better. But there's, sorry, there's parrots. Oh. <laughs> what the parrots? hell is going on? It's it's a weird thing where like somebody brought them once a long time ago and now there's like this random population of parrots that live in the city and fly around and anyway. Oh, in Florida there's peacocks. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.